This morning we are in the book of Philippians. That probably is no surprise to you. Book of Philippians, and we will be in verses 8 and 9 today of chapter 4. So Philippians chapter 4, if you turn there with me, verses 8 and 9. And so we'll begin by reading that. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. And so here we are. uh, When Paul says finally, he's said this before. Um, I don't know, you might be having deja vu to one of my sermons where I say finally. And that just means finally we're getting to the beginning of the text. I don't know. Uh, But Paul has said finally before, but that didn't necessarily mean he was bringing things to a close, did it? But now he's saying finally, brothers, I want to... I want to wrap your minds around this concept of how it is that Christians are to think and behave in this world. Do you remember that as we began looking at the book of Philippians some 29 weeks ago, that we said that Paul's desire for the church is that their aspirations and attitudes would be adjusted. That their aspirations and attitudes would be adjusted. The primary aspiration for the Christian should be progress in the faith. The primary attitude of the Christian ought to be joy in the faith. That is, we are to have progress and joy in the faith. And so if our attitudes are anything other than joy in the faith, we've got some adjustment to do. If our aspiration is anything other than progress in the faith, we have some adjustments to do. And so the book of Philippians has been about adjusting ourselves in our aspirations and our attitudes to think properly and behave properly according to what God has said in his word. This is Paul's desire for the church, that they might be shaped, that they might be changed. How are progress and joy achieved in the faith? Well, he's been laying that out for us in some detail, hasn't he? Here's how you have joy. Here's how you have progress in the faith. Here's how you move forward. Here's how you deal with that. What were some of the issues? They weren't experiencing joy properly, this church. They weren't achieving progress properly in this church. But he would say things like this, whether you live or you die, your life is about Christ Jesus. So don't you see that all these little things that tend to get in your way are somewhat meaningless? if your attitude and aspirations are all backwards, because then you're going to be looking at your circumstances rather than looking to the cross. But if your primary aspiration was progress in the faith, don't you see how you would have looked through all these things and seen the cross? Don't you see how the things that brought you down, you truly would have had joy in the midst of them because you wouldn't have been able to see through your circumstances to the joy that you have in Christ? Do you have joy in the church? They were having disunity. They were having problems within the church itself. And so he said, you need to have joy. You need to have progress in the faith in your church. But you're all kind of grumbling against one another. 
and you're seeing yourself as more important than the person sitting next to you, and so you need to adjust this about yourself. You need to see the person next to you as more important than you. You need to see them as more significant than you. You need to humble yourself. And then Paul says, and I know someone who we can look to as an example of humility. Jesus Christ himself, who took on sinful flesh and humbled himself, even death on a cross, is where the Savior spent his life. And so, how are we to respond in this? Well, if Jesus Christ, being God in the flesh, could do something like humbling himself to a cross, could we not? We're not God, but can not we at least see other people as more significant than ourselves? And wouldn't this create joy? Wouldn't this create unity in the body? If we were to just have our attitudes adjusted, if we were to just have our aspirations adjusted to be Christ-centered, then we would begin seeing things and responding to each other differently because it's not all about me. It's not all about my personal happiness and satisfaction. It's about Christ. And it's about me humbling myself and seeing you as more important than me because that's what my Savior did for me. He humbled himself for me, for my salvation. And so how am I to adjust myself knowing who my Savior is, who my God is? And so, Paul would say, do these types of things. Don't do these types of things. It's very practical. Be like this. Don't be like that. Don't think about yourself this way. Think about yourself this way. And in doing so, we begin to be adjusted. If we're listening. I wonder, even in this short introduction, how many of you, even for a time, have tuned out? See, I just proved my point. Gotcha. Are we paying attention to everything the Word of God has to say? Do you think that the church listened to every single word that Paul had to say? Or did they tune out at times? Are we a people who are prone to tune out? Yep. All the time. And so, we need to get things straight. We need to say, okay, what do I need to be thinking about? What do I need to be listening to? I'm ready. Tell me. I'm engaged. I'm listening. I don't want to miss a thing. Because the word of God is important to me. And I want to live my life according to what God has said. So what, what, what does the word say? How are we to adjust ourselves today based on this text? I want to know. Paul's instruction and example to them are meant to shape their thoughts and behaviors. Tell me, throughout the book of Philippians so far, has Paul's teaching and his example served to help you adjust your thoughts and your behaviors? If not, and you haven't been thinking rightly, Because God has chosen words, concepts, arguments, reason to get us into the right frame of mind so that we might think and behave the way we should. You might think, God being God after all, how come he can't just, you know, we have computer, you just download some new Christian software into my unchristian person. 
I just want to be Christian. I want to know what I need to know, behave the way I need to behave, and he can do it in an instant. Why doesn't he just tell me everything I need to know? I just have the knowledge. I have the behavior. Is God not powerful enough to change me like that? Or is he not willing to change you like that? It is not God's design that change be instantaneous for us, but rather a process. And he has chosen also the means by which you are transformed. And it is by means of his word and his spirit at work in you. And the spirit is the one who authored the word. And so you have word and you have power within you to be changed. But they do not operate independently of one another in this regard. How am I to be different? How am I to think differently? How am I to behave differently? We have it here for us. We don't have to wonder, but it is laid out for us plainly. I'm going to give you an example here before we get into our text of something that Paul had said in Romans chapter 6. So I'm going to read for you just a few verses out of Romans 6, just to help us with this idea. Romans 6 verses 5 through 12. Listen to what it says. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be reunited with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we also believe that we will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death doesn't have dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. You might be saying, why are you reading this? Because listen to what he says next. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. How did Paul just reason with the Roman church? By giving them argumentation and reason, logic. Listen, Christ died. He's not going to die again. He lives forevermore. So you too also should consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, believing these things to be true, here's how you should behave. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Consider yourself dead to sin. I don't sin anymore. That's not part of me anymore. I'm dead to it. It's dead to me. I don't sin anymore. That's not me. I don't operate like that. That should be our mindset. I don't do those types of things. I live over here in this world. I don't live over here in this world. How did he get them to go there? With words and with argumentation and with logic and with reason. Do you see it? How is it communicated to us? Through thoughts. Here's what I'm saying. God has chosen to communicate to us using thoughts and reason and logical concepts. So Paul is putting together some final thoughts for the consideration of the Philippian church. He's saying, in light of this, here's what I want you to think about. Here's my point. We need to allow the truth of Scripture to transform our thoughts and behaviors. Is that said simply enough? We need to allow the truths of Scripture 
the arguments contained therein, the logic presented to us, the truth statements here, we need to allow them to shape how we think and how we behave. And if we're not, we are not being conformed to Christ, but to the world instead. Do you see how this all works together? Are you allowing your life to be conformed to Christ? If so, what is your pattern? What does Christ look like? How are you being transformed? How are you thinking differently? How are you behaving differently? What is your set? What is your standard? I wonder, what are your expectations when you read the Bible? What are your expectations when you come to church? I, I would love. I, I, would, I would love it, and some aspect of me would love it, but I wouldn't love it entirely, so that's why I don't do it. But uh, some aspect of me would love to take a survey of what your expectations are in coming to church. What, why are you here? What are you hoping to get out of this? Why did you come this morning? I just, I wonder. Do you think that we would all have the exact same answer? No, I don't think so either. What should our expectations be? Is that a good question to ask? Because when your expectations aren't met, aren't you very dissatisfied in your church experience? And if you get too dissatisfied in your church experience, what do you do? You either stop coming or you look for a new one. That's unfortunate, isn't it? But rather than being disappointed in what you experience at church, maybe your expectations ought to be adjusted according to what the Word of God has to say about what you should expect. Maybe that's the better thing to do. I would, I would argue that that is true. What do we expect when you, what, what do you expect, not only in coming to church, what do you expect, what are your expectations about hearing a sermon? What are you expecting? Are you expecting to feel differently after I'm done? Are you expecting me to put in a couple of little jokes here and there? I don't have good jokes. I'm sorry to disappoint you if you haven't heard me talk very much. I don't have very good jokes. I don't have any cool visuals. I don't have a set, you know. I, I don't have any of that. There's no smoke on the stage. I, there's nothing to mask anything here. So what are your expectations then? And what has shaped those expectations? Why are those your expectations? I hope that you're considering these things because I'm asking you to. Are you actually putting thought into the questions that I'm asking? What are your expectations? And why are those your expectations? Who told you that that's what church should be like? Who told you that that's what a sermon should do for you? Who told you these things? Why are those your expectations? That's, that's difficult, isn't it? Just being honest. Because so much of our experience just being in church tells us what church should be like. And if church was like this for you growing up, then you expect that that's what church is supposed to be. Or maybe if you went here for a long time, maybe you just, you have different expectations about what church should be. Maybe you see church on TV or you see church on YouTube or 
something. You say, that's what church is supposed to be. And so that's what your expectations are. But why are those your expectations? What we expect when we hear a sermon is that the word of God would cut deep into our hearts and our minds, that it would affect us, that it would change us, that we would become more like Christ through his word. If your expectations are anything different, you're going to be disappointed in this sermon. And pretty much every sermon I preach. There's nothing flashy. I'm okay with kids crying in the middle of my sermon and people getting up and walking around. But what are your expectations? I'm asking you to think about these things because what are you expecting today? What are you expecting out of this passage? We should be expecting that God who has spoken will speak this word into our hearts and into our minds and that we would believe it to be true and that we would be changed. That we would fall on our face in humble obedience and awe of who God is and what he's doing. Is that your expectation? Do you expect God to be at work in you today? Do you expect God to be speaking through his word to you today? If that's not your expectation, you need to change your expectations. The word of God is living and it is active and it is real and it is true and it has power to change us. But are you thinking about it? Are you allowing the truths of scripture to shape how you think and how you behave? Are those your expectations? We expect God to be at work We expect him to be at work in such a way that there is no shadow of sin remaining inside of us. Is that what your hope? I expect the word of God to shine a light in the deep recesses of my soul and my mind and show me where I am off the mark. Because I don't want to be. I want to live a life of complete surrender and obedience to the God who has saved me, the God who has made me. And so God, shine a light in our hearts today through your word. That's what we want. We expect God to show us who he is and who we are in light of his word. And sometimes, just like when the lights come on in a dark room and it hurts your eyes, yes, it stings for a time, doesn't it? And it may, but it's only good because it shows us how we are to now think differently, how we are to behave differently. Don't be afraid of spiritual conviction. Don't be afraid of being convicted by the word of God. That's a good thing. That's a grace of God that he would show you how you're being disobedient. It's a grace of God. Don't you see it? It's a good thing because the thing that God just said, you are out of step with my word here. Don't you realize he has already forgiven you for that? Do you realize all your sin, past, present, future is laid on Jesus Christ at the moment of faith in him. It is paid for already. And so when you have sin in your life and God shines a light on it by his word, convicts you of that by his spirit, I have seen so often people go into this depressed place. They stop coming to church for a while and they say, oh, woe is me. I'm too sinful to even go to church. In fact, I'm gonna stop reading my Bible because I don't like it anymore. but that's not us. We embrace the light. We say, God, show me. Show me all the things that you have already forgiven me for. 
because I want to be different for your sake, for your glory. Is that what you want this morning? Is it your expectation that you might hear that from the word of God? I hope so. This is a good thing, a grace of God in our life. So Paul is about to tell us what we should be thinking about as Christians and how we should be behaving. So there are two controlling imperative verbs in these two verses. One of them is in verse 8, one of them is in verse 9. The first one is think about these things. The second one in verse 9 is practice these things. And everything else surrounds these two controlling imperatives. Think about these things. Practice these things. What types of things are we to be thinking about? And what does it even mean to think about them? To think. It means to weigh or to calculate and consider. When I tell you to think about what your expectations are, did you weigh the scales? Did you say, what, 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 what are my expectations about being here? I'm going to consider that. I'm going to calculate, I'm going to weigh all the things here, and I'm going to come up with a conclusion. This, these are my expectations. My conclusion is, I don't know what my expectations are. Maybe that's your conclusion. But what you did is you calculated, you weighed all these things, and then you came up with an answer. This is what Paul is telling us to do when he says, think about these things. Calculate them. Consider them. Weigh them. What do you think? Let your mind be in a constant state of dwelling on and calculating these things. What things? Well, before we do that, I, I need to introduce you to, possibly introduce you to an idea here. Because when the scriptures call us to think, this is something I believe very foreign to the world we live in. There is something called the noetic effects of sin. The noetic effects of sin has nothing to do with Noah. I know it sounds a lot like Noah, uh, although it affected him as well. The noetic effects of sin refers to this word nous, which means mind or the process of thinking, and it means that sin has affected even so deep into the person that it affects negatively our thoughts and our reason and our intellect. Do you know that your mind was broken by sin? The way that you reason was broken by sin. The way that you think was broken by sin. I tell Amanda, I feel like quite frequently that I actually feel like I, uh, well, <laughs> okay, so when I was a youth pastor, I used to talk about the, 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 the hamster on the wheel. You guys remember me talking about that? And I would say to them all the time, I, your hamster is not on its wheel right now. Your hamster has died. Please revive your hamster and let the wheels start turning in your brain. Do you ever, can you remember not being a Christian and your mind being broken? I, I couldn't even think about these things. I, had, I was, I didn't, this was not a realm that I thought about. I didn't consider these things. I was completely in darkness in my mind. My life was all about me. My life was about what I liked, my desires, my pleasures. And it thought about sin. It was like there was a, a, an area of thought that I just, I couldn't 
even think about those. I was in darkness completely. But the reality of that is, yes, you were. Did you realize you were in darkness? You were in complete darkness with no light at all. No light. I'll show you this from Romans 1 and the idea presented to us in our text, I'm just going to tell you this because you're wondering. We haven't, what, all you've said so far from the text is finally. You're, I know, I, I got it. We're going to look at verses 8 and 9, but the concepts are so simple that we really need to have a little bit of background into why Paul might be telling us this. Because the concept to grasp this morning is very simple. But why does he need to even say it? What kind of implication does it have for us? And so we need to talk about how for Paul to tell the Christian, think, he cannot tell the world, think, because they can't. They can't. Okay, so he, he gets into this when he talks to the Roman, the Roman church. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 32. Just listen to it. The concept he's going to lay out here is so plain. It's so very basic. But just listen to what he's saying, okay? Romans 1, 20 through 32. For his invisible attributes, this is, he's speaking of God, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, and so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for things representing or resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations to those that are contrary to nature. Likewise, men gave up natural relations with women and consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, listen, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, but they not only do them, they give approval to those who practice them. So, do we see how God is taking the unbelieving world and he's saying, here is the condition of the fallen mind. Here is the condition of the sinful mind. They are so darkened in their understanding that they, God is, it is plain, it is obvious that God is God. But they choose to instead worship the creature rather than the creator. That's how obvious it is. There is an obvious design of humanity that God created. And they look and they say, no, let's do it a different way. 
And they say, you see how obvious it is? You see how plain it is? Because they can't think. You get it? They can't think. They can't reason. They don't get it. They're in darkness. And so no wonder whole cultures embrace these concepts. No wonder. Because they're in darkness. They can't see it. They don't get it. But do you see that how they think comes out in their behavior? So because they did not acknowledge God, here's what they did. Because they did not give him glory, but they exchanged the truth for a lie, here's how that worked out in their lives. So you see, how a person thinks is directly related to, associated with, how a person behaves. So tell me, do your actions correspond with what you believe? Do your actions, your thoughts, your behaviors, do they correspond to what you believe to be true? I'm neither getting head shakes to the affirmative or to the negative, so I don't know. Are you considering that? Are you thinking about it? What is the plain answer to that? No. I know what is right, but do I always do what is right? I know what God would have for me, but do I always do it? You, you follow me? So what I, I know to be true, I know it's there, I know that's right, but I don't always behave the way I should. Here is the difference between you and the unbeliever. They don't even know what's right. They don't even know. Now, does God, by his common grace and his spirit at work, give everyone a sense of a moral compass? Murder is wrong. Stealing is wrong. I mean, that's, it's in there a little bit, right? It's, it's in the unbelie- unbelieving world a little bit. It's there. It, I know that that's not quite right, but I don't care. Right? Christians are then commanded, commanded to be renewed in their mind. Be renewed in your mind. Do not be like the world. There are a lot of texts here that I could read. I read one this morning to the band, and I just think it's a much more fitting text. And so I'm going to read that one. Listen to what it says. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Your former ignorance. Do you see it? Because you are no longer in that area of darkness and you're ignorant to the things of God and to his truth and his commands. No, that's not you anymore. Don't pretend as though you are ignorant. Don't live as someone who is ignorant of the word of God. You don't know. Don't act like you don't know. Don't act like you don't know what God has said in his word. Do your, does your behavior and your thoughts and your way of thinking and your expectations, your attitude, your aspirations in life, does it reflect what you have read in the word of God? Yes or no? And if it doesn't, why not? Stop acting ignorant. You understand what the word ignorant means? 
That word was used a lot in my household in a way that didn't make sense. The word ignorant just simply means that you don't have information. You're in the dark about it. I don't know. I was ignorant to it. That's what it means. Don't act like you don't know. Isn't that always the best, though? I didn't know. I didn't know that was wrong. I didn't know. Oh, I didn't know that Christians weren't supposed to do that. And it's so innocent. Oh, thanks for telling me. I'm not going to do what you're saying, but thank you so much for telling me. And in this moment, I'm going to tell you how, oh, I'm going to change that about myself. But you have no intention of changing. You just found a way to get out of that awkward situation. But no, there is a way that Christians are to behave. And there is a a way that Christians are not to behave. There is a way that Christians are to think. And there is a way that Christians are not to think. Are you allowing your thoughts and behaviors to be shaped by Scripture? But Christians are commanded to be renewed in their thinking. Commanded. You want to find another text about that, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed in the renewal of your mind. Don't think like that anymore. Tell me, are you putting work into being transformed in your thinking? Or are you content thinking how you think? I'm all set. I don't have to put work into that anymore. I've been a Christian for a while. That work was early on, and I'm not into that anymore. That's, that's beneath me. I'm there. I've matured. I don't need to hear these simple instructions anymore. We constantly need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds because we are prone to look back to the darkness and lean back over into it if we're not pulled out of it. We're prone to sin. You're going to want to go back to sin because that's where it feels good. Because it's about you. Sin is all about you, you know that. It's just utter, complete selfishness which is a complete reversal of who God is, right? You make yourself your own God. Everything is about God, not about you. You are the creature, not the creator. So by the Spirit of God, the Christian is able, unlike the unbeliever, the Christian is able to think and to reason. Are you using your power of thinking and reasoning, or are you allowing it to be idle in your life? you know what it takes work doesn't it does it take effort to think is our culture at large a thinking culture actually what what i would say is that our culture at large is a feeling culture whatever you feel do if you feel like that's wrong then it's wrong You see, they're not engaged in thought and in reason. They're engaged in how you feel. And so therefore, have you noticed that there's not argumentation about things, there's rioting instead. Because it's giving over to the emotion. I feel this way about it, and so here's what I'm going to do in response. It's all emotion, it's all feeling. 
There's not thinking. Is that how we're to be? Or are we to be using our reason, using our minds, our renewed minds to think properly about the world that we live in, to think properly about God himself, to think properly about your own life, to think properly about how to be a faithful wife, how to be a faithful husband. How has God told me that husbands are to act in my household? I want to change myself to be like that. I don't want to be how I feel like I want to be. I feel like I want to be lazy and selfish. But that's not what the word calls me to. The word calls me to serve and to lead and to give my very life for them. To be an example to them. This is what the word of God says to me and I want to embrace it. I want to change my way of thinking. I want to change my behavior. I want to do what the word says in all your aspects of life. Is this the way you're thinking? How do I become a better employee? What does the word of God have to say about that? How am I to change my thought process? How am I to spend my days in retirement? How am I to spend my money? How am I to dress? How am I to think? What am I to listen to? How am I to do this? Everything. Do you see how it goes into every part of your life? Everything must be shaped by the word of God. There is nothing left unturned. It all must come from the word of God. So are you thinking rightly about your life? Think on these things. I suppose we ought to get to them. Here's what it says. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, These words are so simple, they don't need a whole lot of explanation. This word for true represents reality. That is, whatever is actually there. Truth corresponds with reality. Do you know that all people don't believe that? I mean, that's so basic, but not everybody believes that. Do you know how most people in our postmodern world think about truth? You create truth, excuse me, You create truth, you do not discover truth. Whatever is true for you is true. There is no objective standard for truth in our culture at large. You cannot say, but but that's wrong. Says who? Says who? Our response? God said, how, where? In his word. You think that that book is from God himself. God wrote you a book. Don't you know that was made by men? Don't you know all the copies of that thing, how many mistakes there are and all those? We talked about that, didn't we? Do they have any ground to stand on? No. Christians ought to be thinking about those things that correspond with reality. Second, honorable. What is honorable, what is dignified, what is worthy of respect? First, in, first Timothy and Titus use this about speaking uh, to the character of a dignified person who is uh, a deacon or an older man, is to be dignified. That which is appropriate, good character, that which is right, respectable. You get the idea? Christians ought to be thinking about what is 
worthy of respect. The next is just, what is just or what is fair or upright. In the culture at the time, this word was used a lot. Um, It was used for the person in their society who sought the welfare of the society at large. So whatever's best for the city or the culture is you are a good representation of what it means to be a good citizen. Be a good Roman citizen. Can a Christian properly, if we understood Roman times, could a Christian be a good Roman citizen? No. Were the Philippians Roman citizens? Philippi was little Rome, remember? Everything was Roman. I said to you, the very heartbeat of Philippi is Rome. Rome. That's who we are. But then Paul says, no, no, no. Don't you realize you're citizens of heaven? Don't act like a just citizen of Rome. So what is he saying here? Live as a just citizen of heaven on earth. Even if they're all doing this and they say, no, 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 this is what's just. This is fairness. You say, not according to the God I serve. Not according to the God who created this earth. The next word is that which is pure or innocent. It carries with it the idea of being unstained from sin. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 about this word pure. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. That word pure right there is our word. When they see that you are innocent, or free from sin, they're going to notice something about your character. They're going to see God himself. They're going to see the gospel at work in you. It is hard to live day by day with those who have not had the illumination of their minds by the Spirit of God, and yet you're in their presence constantly. It is so hard. It weighs on your soul but you are not called to give up in those times. You are called to do what your God has called you to. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it is what you're called to. 1 John 3, 3 through 6, everyone who hopes in himself purifies himself as he is pure. So everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. So the one who keeps abiding in sin keeps on sinning, but no one who keeps on sinning has either seen God or knows God. And so, if you want to live a pure life as God is pure, you have to stop sinning. So the idea is attached to sin. Next, that which is lovely. Lovely. What is lovely? So we're to be thinking about things that are pretty, I mean, things like pieces of artwork and stuff, is that I'm supposed to be thinking about like what I think is beautiful? It's very subjective, Paul. I mean, everybody thinks different things are pretty. Is that what he means? Think about your favorite work of art, you know, or whatever it may be. Think about pretty things. It means things that are pleasing or things that receive admiration from people. Think about the things that you receive admiration from people for. but you might be thinking, well, the culture at large large makes 
people seem admirable who are not. Th- th- our culture admires things that they shouldn't admire. So am I supposed to do that? Well, no, we have to filter all these things through our behavior being admirable according to godly standards. The last one here is commendable, that is worthy of praise, well spoken of. A lot of these words are used only in secular Greek and most of the time not in the Bible at all, which means for some they have said Paul is most likely pulling these from an external source saying, the culture at large says, this is how you're to be. This is how you're to think. It's what our culture says. And so Paul is saying, yes, all those things Pursue them, but if there is any excellence in them, if there is anything worthy of praise in them, and that's the next part of your passage. If there is any excellence in them, if there is anything worthy of praise in them, think about these things. The Greek here for excellence is arete. Excellent. But this word cannot be removed from a social context. It can't be removed from a social context. So what it means is that what is being done here, people look at it and say that's a good thing. You can't have excellence by yourself. People have to look at you and say that's a good thing. That's excellent. Good for you. So what is Paul saying here? Anything worthy of praise. Our culture identifies things that are just. Our our culture identifies things that are lovely. Our culture identifies things that are commendable, right? And so Paul doesn't simply say, think about stuff that's going to make you happy. No, what he's saying is, rightly think about what is just. Rightly think about what is true. Rightly think about what is lovely. And you're going to stand out like a sore thumb you're going to stand out almost like a light shining in darkness. That's right. You will. In other words, whatever is morally excellent and worthy of praise among these six things, think about those things. Let your patterns of thought be shaped around these things. Align your thinking with God's character and his standards as you live in the time and space that God has placed you. Do not allow yourself to be thinking the way the people around you think. Why? Because their minds are in darkness and their behavior corresponds to their thoughts. So we should be different not only in how we act but in what we think. Are you thinking rightly about the world around you? And so we we end with this here, verse 9. So he says, what you have learned, what you have received, what you have heard, what you have seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Only when we know what to do are we able to do it. Would you agree? Only when we know what we should do can we do it unless it's just by some kind of weird freak accident. I did that. I didn't even know it was right, but thanks for noticing. But only when we are instructed can we properly change our thought patterns, which changes our behavior. But why do all this? Why put the work into it? Why? Why are we concerned with thinking rightly in a world that does not? 
because this is what your God has called you to. And if you need more reason than that, then your reasoning is broken in this regard. Don't you see that all you need is for God's word to say it, and so therefore you have an imperative placed on your life that you must do it? You need to change the way you think. You need to change the way you behave. How do you do it? By thinking godly thoughts, by thinking rightly about the world around you, by identifying things which are lovely according to what God says is lovely, by saying this is true because God says it's true, because it's real, because it's right. What does God say is fair and just? I want to identify things in the world as fair and just according to what God has said. Does does this make sense? What you think shapes, it transforms, it depicts how you behave. And so if you have no thoughts about how to be a good husband, for example, guess what you're not going to be? A good husband. If you have no thoughts on what it means to be a good mother, guess what you're not going to be? A good mother. If you have no thoughts on how to be a good employee, guess what you're not going to be? A good employee. And why does any of that matter? Because all of your thoughts and all of your behavior and everything you have in your life is to be shaped by the word of God. And if you're letting anything not be shaped by the word of God, you're in error there. We need to be conformed to Christ. We need to be transformed in the renewal of our minds by what God has said in his word. Surrender your anxieties about this to the Lord. Admit to God that some of these things are very difficult. I don't want to change how I think about that because I'm going to stand out for that. I don't want to change it because I really, really, really like it. You need to come to your God, as we talked about last week, and say, I, I, these things weigh heavy on my heart and I'm scared to even think these thoughts. I'm scared to even think about changing that about myself. Cast your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you, even about this. Do you get it? He cares for you. He wants you to be conformed to him. Go to him. Confess to him where light has been shown in your heart, where you see, I've not been in step with the Lord here, but I want to be different. Confess that to him. And tell him, I want to be how you want me to be. I want to change the way I think about that. It's hard for me. Admit that. Ask for God to give you wisdom. Ask for him to give you strength. Ask for him to give you peace. Ask for him to give you opportunity. I'm going to end our time here together on this, in uh, not in our text. I just want to take you one more place and we'll finish here. And that is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you would turn there with me just briefly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you just turn there with me. It's going to be almost toward the end of your Bible. 1 Thessalonians 4. By the way, I think some people have anxiety about looking stuff up in their Bible. There's something super helpful. Right right up here. I mean, my Bible has one. I don't know. I mean, yours does, I think. Uh, but it's called the Table of Contents. And it... And y- you can find it, and it tells you what page it's on. It's okay. You can use that. Go ahead. It's there for our help. If you don't know where it's at, just <coughs> look it up. It's okay. You'll find it. It's not a Bible drill. 
Are you there? First Thessalonians chapter four. Let's just look at verses one through eight as we end our time together today. Finally then, brothers. Paul's speaking and he's saying finally again. We ask and urge you in the Lord that just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of the flesh like the Gentiles who do not know God, Do you see the parallel thought here? They don't know God, so they're acting that way. Don't act that way. You know God. But conduct yourself in holiness and honor. See see to it that no one transgresses transgresses or wrongs his brother in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all these things. And so as we've told you beforehand, we've solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. So, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so, therefore, we have instruction from the Lord on how we're to think and how our thoughts are to transform and shape our behavior. And if you disregard this, if you choose to not consider these things, you're not being disobedient to me. but you're being disobedient to God himself who has said this in his word. And is it your expectation this morning that the sermon would shine light on a dark spot in your heart and that you would be transformed by the word of God? That the word of God would make plain to you where you should think differently. Was that your expectation about the sermon? If it wasn't, then we just ended on a bad note here but if it was your expectation that the word of God is revealing to you how you should be different then I pray and I have prayed for you and the elders have prayed for you as we do every Sunday morning that the word of God would powerfully impact your life that you might be changed that you may become more, more mature in Christ that you might be different that your thoughts and your behaviors would be shaped by God's word and you're not alone in this by the way God's power himself, he is in you, dwelling in you to give you the power to change by his spirit. If he said it in his word by his spirit, he has given you his spirit in you to make this change possible. He has not said, you go and do this on your own power and strength. He's saying, understand it and rely on my power and strength to change you. But you have to be transformed in your thoughts. You have to rightly think about your thoughts and your behaviors in this world. We need to allow the truth of Scripture to transform our thoughts and our behaviors. This is what God wants for all of us in this room today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we rely upon you to convict us of the truths that we find here and it it is not something that we make ourselves go into some kind of depression because we realize that we're out of step with you but no instead actually 
it's a time of rejoicing knowing that even though I was far more sinful than I ever thought, you still love me and have cared for me and have saved me and have forgiven me. And all I did today was realize how much I have already been forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ. But now I want to live my life in obedience to your word. And so we rely on you. We want to be obedient. We want to be sanctified. This is your will for our lives, that we be sanctified, that we become more holy, that we become more mature in Christ. This is what we want. And so I pray for us in this room today, Lord, that you would do your work. Only you can do by sanctifying us. Make us more like Christ. Show us where our sin is, that we might be obedient to you, and joyfully so. Because if we don't have the attitude of joy, we're going about this all wrong. We want progress in our faith. We want joy in our faith, Lord, and we rely on you for all these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.